Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the latest edition of Credit Crunch, part of the Fick Focus podcast series brought to you by the Fick Strategy Research Team here at Bloomberg Intelligence. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me as ever is colleague Sam Geyer. Uh, and before diving in, a little public service announcement. If you like what we're doing with Fick Focus, please do take a moment to follow, comment, and share, as that helps us to keep bringing great content to you. So today... We ascend the ranks of active fixed income management and talk duration, convexity, and what to expect when you're expecting something other than a soft landing. We do that with Brian Whalen. He's co-chief investment officer and a generalist portfolio manager over at TCW for their fixed income group. And that's a team that oversees 170 billion or so in fixed income assets. So, and he joins us to talk about what's next for credit. So with that, Brian, welcome. All right. Thanks, Noel. Hi, Sam. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So a lot to cover given the myriad crosswinds impacting credit markets today, certainly a lot of volatility in credit and treasuries day to day. But in general, I like to start with a little bit of context in terms of the shop and, and the person. Uh, so maybe just to set the tone here and give our listeners a little bit of a sense of TCW in case they don't know, uh, maybe a little word association. We'll have a little fun with it. So I'm going to throw out a quick phrase for you and then you respond as you see fit. Uh, so first phrase for you. Active versus passive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I believe in the former, at least within the bond market. All right. Well, that, that's a good answer for your house. Yeah. Uh, here's here's another one for you. Systematic credit. Ooh. Um, uh, aversion. <laughs> <laughs> Generally, it takes me a little longer to stump people, but uh, but this is good. This is good. Yeah. Keep going. Right. Let's go. Here, here's one for you. Higher for longer. For now. <laughs> All right. And here's one I know you have a very uh, a, a very strong feeling for. So feel free to expound upon it as you see fit. Soft landing. Fairy tale. <laughs> All right. So so there we have sort of a, a outline of what this conversation may look like as we move through it. And then just maybe, Brian, a little bit about yourself. I mean, uh, I'm going off of memory here, but certainly correct uh, the journey if I misstate anything here. But I believe you started out at DLJ, uh, made your way over to Credit Suisse First Boston, and then sort of jumped aboard uh, the Metropolitan West ship before it was acquired by TCW. And so you've been there since I guess the acquisition was maybe like 2010. Uh, so I guess real quickly in terms of your career progression, sort of what's what do you think sort of works for you or has worked for you and has allowed you to be successful? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I started with a heavy focus in securitized, you know, so mortgage-backed securities and asset-backed. And I think, you know, that's such an interesting area. Like you're, you're analyzing collateral, you're analyzing structure, you're analyzing sponsor. And I think it almost kind of gives you a nice kind of full suite of tools um, and experience. Um, to then kind of launch off of and, you know, kind of, you know, examine other areas. And then, you know, certainly very formative time in my career, you know, I'm kind of sitting there in the, in the middle of the great financial crisis and, you know, securitized products was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was ground zero, so to speak. So, you know, I had to, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the most pleasant time, at least not every single part of it, but it was certainly an incredible learning lesson. Uh, and I think, you know, for me personally, I've taken that to the point we are where we are 
uh, today in terms of the markets and expectations. And I think, you know, myself and, and all the other senior members of the team here, we bring a lot of experience and a lot of, I think a little, maybe a little balance to perspectives. Um, when I kind of think about not just our team, but, you know, a large portion of the investment community, they really only know investing in this kind of QE, really kind of hyper um, central bank managed, you know, capital markets environment. Uh, and what I think that does is, you know, when we spent the better part of 2010 to 2022 in an environment where every time there was volatility in the capital markets, the central banks would run to the rescue and it would calm that volatility down. I think as an investor, if that's your only experience, you maybe don't appreciate the left side of the tail uh, of a return distribution, meaning that, you know, your risk is is somewhat has been floored uh, or, or, you know, the put, so to speak, you know, from central banks. And I think, you know, that we're, we're kind of, we rolled into a period here where that just may not be the case. In fact, that may be the objective of central banks, which is to actually let, you know, asset prices kind of reset and the economy reset, you know, without this, uh, without this kind of hyper micromanagement from, from, from central banks. So, you know, one of the things I talk about when sort of I'm out and about, and, and I think, and I'm curious, it sounds like maybe we're in somewhat of an alignment here is, is, you know, to your point in terms of the, the central bank and the Fed sort of running to the rescue at, at the first signs of stress and sort of ever compressing windows of time, right? Uh, you know, the way I tend to think of it is post-financial crisis, you know, it took the Fed probably, I don't know, in my mind, maybe two to three years before the market really said, oh, yeah, they're there for us. Okay, yeah, we're going to start playing that trade. And to your point, I mean, it may be that now we're in sort of the, the opposite end of that spectrum, the other side of that bookshelf, where, you know, the, the market's still having to sort of adjust to the fact that the Fed is not in that position and, in fact, maybe kind of doing the opposite. And, and so that sort of retraining exercise takes a little time. Is that sort of how you're seeing it or, or maybe uh, with a little bit more nuance or just totally different? Uh, yeah, no, that's exactly right. I think I think the markets, when we look at pricing, like if you look at corporate bond spreads or high yield spreads or, you know, even the equity market, it, it almost... And I think this is why the, you know, the, the no landing soft landing has, has gotten so much kind of traction and embrace from investor community. It's like any single time a, a federal governor, you know, a board member speaks a little dovishly, you know, credit does well. And it's just kind of it's they've got this sense that, you know, well, if it just gets a little bad, all of a sudden, not only are they going to you know not hike, but, you know, they may we're going to move forward expectations of cuts. And to me, you know, to us, that feels like the old world, you know, the 2010 to 22 world. So in terms of like the, I, th I think that maybe said another way, the central bank's tolerance for a slowdown in economic activity, the central bank's tolerance for a drawdown in the equity market, I think it's a lot higher than the markets are, are, are giving them credit for. And I think that, you know, the pain and the volatility in, 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 in the capital markets, it's going to come when, you know, collectively investors kind of sit back and like, oh, wait a minute, like, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not going to come to the rescue when the S and P is down ten percent. You know, it's going to have to be down something much greater for that than that to get the central bank to act. And I think that will really change investors' perception of risk and how they price it. So, staying on the topic of you know these moments of stress, you wrote a couple months back about the regional banking crisis. Uh, I was just curious, like what you, what was your biggest takeaway that you took from that crisis specifically in terms of, you know, where we're headed over the coming years? Was that for you more just like a foreshadowing or did you see it as something a little bit deeper and a little bit more structural? 
I, I think it's a good reminder. And it's not something I think we've ever lost sight of, at least we, or we try not to, our job's not to, which is, you know, particularly after when you're late in the cycle, you know, whether it's when, you know, like 2019, when leverage is really high and we're all talking about corporate debt and all this thing, you know, back in then it was like, you know, the, the we didn't know what was going to happen, but the market felt, um, it felt vulnerable. It felt like it was priced for anything but the status quo. And, you know, what we would articulate to our clients is like, look, we don't know when the recession is going to start or what's going to trigger it. We just know the economy and the market's vulnerable because it's just priced for perfection. And we think about right now and it's like, oh, my goodness, like, you know, we just had a, a, a basically within the with the exception of Japan, we've had a 500 basis point hiking cycle, you know, from from global developed central banks. Credit spreads are priced for the no soft landing. For us, things, again, they just feel vulnerable and subject to something other than the status quo. And so back to your question, you know, no, most people, you know, 99 plus percent of investors did not see the regional banking crisis coming. Now, if in hindsight, it looks pretty obvious. All you had to do was look at the asset liability mismatch, you know, on these on these banks balance sheet and the whole. And you kind of and if you understand banking, you understand it's a business of confidence. And once that's gone. Um, when you've got that hole in your balance sheet, you've got a problem. So anyway, it, I think that's the lesson to learn from. I don't think it's a banking lesson. I think it's just a lesson to say, you know what, like one of two things are going to happen here. Either like the, the these 500 basis points of hiking are just going to eventually squeeze the energy and the life out of the economy and we'll see unemployment rise and we'll see spending come down or we're going to get a financial accident. You know, we're going to get something that's not currently on our radar screen, but you kind of got to believe that the this hiking cycle is going to is having its pain and inflicting pain on other parts of the economy that you know maybe right in front of our face but we can't see it right now and so at some point this thing's going to turn and more likely than not it's going to happen quite quickly just like that happened yeah and where with where we are right now in the cycle like how do you go about approaching positioning TCW for success and, and i guess also with that what does success i guess look like for you uh, in terms of you know is it outperforming benchmarks? Is it growing into some different asset classes? Yeah, well, success for us is uh, is outperforming benchmarks. It's outperforming our peers. I mean, that's that's as simple as it said. You know, we, technically, we get paid to outperform the benchmarks. In reality, we get paid to outperform our peers. I mean, that's the real. And, you know, within the, as Noel mentioned in the beginning, within the active, you know, space. Um, and so we, we have to, we have to be two things. <laughs> um, you know, for us, and this is just a this, we, we're a value investor, and the reality is like how do we how do we get there? Uh, the, the, the you know the phrase uh, short term pain for long term gain kind of comes to mind, and that's quite that, that is exactly who we are. That's what our clients expect us to be. You know, I think ideally they want to minimize the short term pain to the extent possible, uh, and and for us to maximize the long term gain. So, what does that mean in, in a bond portfolio? That means you know we have to have the courage to do the kind of real research that tells us today, let's say like interest rates look look cheap, meaning you wanna buy duration, bonds look cheap. Certain parts of the bond market, agency mortgage-backed securities market, which is a conversation about negative convexity and maybe we'll get there in this, you know, those are really cheap to us. However, things don't get cheap for no reason. You know, they get cheap because there's been volatility and we say another way, there's been pain, there's been loss, and so uh, investors have an aversion to that, which leads to their prices being cheap. And so what we do here is like, we look at what's fundamentally cheap. We acknowledge that we're not 
you know, we don't have uh, the crystal ball. We can't tell you when it's going to change or the timing. We just know that over the long run, this, this is a, a smart investment. The risk reward looks incredibly attractive. And even if buying it right now means it might work against us a little bit in the short run, it's going to work for our clients very much so in the, in the long run. So I guess I'm at the stage of life where uh, it's kind of long-term pain with the minimus game, but that's more of a personal story <laughs> as opposed to an investment story. But I want to maybe pull on one of those threads a little bit more here in terms of, so focusing in first maybe on Core Plus, which is a big part of what TCW does. And I guess maybe for the benefit of listeners who are maybe less aware of what Core Plus is, it's it's a benchmarked index strategy. Typically, it's going to be anchored in investment grade, that being your quote-unquote core with the plus being generally the latitude that a manager is going to have in terms of to invest in alternative assets, whether it's high yield, emerging markets, MBS, play around with duration, sector exposure, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the MetWest total return bond fund, which is kind of the big megilla within the enterprise, right? Uh, and which is kind of your heritage here. I guess, given the views that you have in terms of for something uh, uh, closer to a hard landing and for a Federal Reserve that is higher for longer for now, I guess, where do you kind of pull the levers in terms of shading those allocations uh, in terms of, you know, is it a sector thing? Is it a duration thing? Are you looking at uh, basically managing duration exposures? Like what are the levers that that sort of you focus on most? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. I would say, you know, you categorize us in the beginning and it's, and it's correct. You know, we're, we're an active manager. Within the active manager bond space, you get a lot of flavors of ice cream. You know, every team has their different strengths and they have a, a different style and investment um, process and philosophy that delivers something a little bit different. Um, and so, you know, I'm not going to name them because they're going to have to get their own press. But, you know, we have, we have some competitors, you know, that that will be super aggressive with duration um, and, and they'll take big deviations versus the index and they'll do it. They'll trade it. You know, they'll make, you know, one day you'll wake up, there'll be long a lot of duration. A month later, there'll be short a lot of duration. And then there's other managers that use currencies very aggressively or derivatives. You know, for us, and it's not to say that those aren't, um, you know, good tools to use within an active bond space. For us, we keep the duration difference uh, about a year from the index. And so that that is active, but it's maybe not as active as others. I would say right now, um, at this point, I'd say it's arguably one of the most attractive times, you know, in my 25 year career to be long interest rate duration. Um, and, and hence we are using most of our, of our, of our budget, our latitude there. Um, you know, the, the other kind of, you know, the big levers or the tools in our belt that we use historically, um, we take a lot of pride. We're very disciplined about managing around what we call the credit cycle. Um, you know, how, you know, how investment grade corporate bonds, how mortgage backed securities, how commercial more, how they're going to perform and, and, you know, how the risk looks. And, you know, we're very um, disciplined and die. I, I kind of equate it to almost like the, uh, like a volume, you know, like the old volume dial on, on a radio, you know, you got volume of zero all the way up to 10. And we will turn that credit risk up and down depending upon our view. And then finally, um, what we probably excel out, you know, um, relative to our peers is the issue selection. And so that's not just moving that dial up and down, that's being very specific with the actual bonds that we're buying. Um, it's, you know, think of a universe of hundreds of thousands of, of bonds out there to pick from. 
you know, we've got our team and, you know, we go through our process where we feel like we, you know, we can pick out out of these large quantities of bonds the right mix, the most attractive mix to get the optimal exposure. And, and that's that's what we do. So, I mean, I guess uh, you touched on a couple of things that I maybe want to sort of explore a little bit further. But I guess maybe the first thing is when you started talking about some of the differentials between uh, TCW style and, and maybe that of some of the competitive set. I guess, you know, when you're looking at it is is sort of when you're doing a reallocation, I guess the, the first question is, is a lot of it really incremental or are you kind of saying, no, this is the view we want to, you know, kind of exercise this view and it ends up being sort of a little bit of a turning the battleship exercise just given market liquidity and availability? Or are you using market proxies like a derivatives or what have you to establish a view quickly and then you're just building into that on the cash side as liquidity permits? We use the term, you know, the very textbook term dollar cost averaging. We use it um, a lot around here because that's how we, the process works. So I would say in, in most environments, 90%, 95% of the time, if you look at our allocation over time to different sectors, you're going to see very disciplined kind of guide, glide paths up and down in terms of how we get in and how we get out of exposure. However, there are two exceptions that jump to mind, and, and, and you know, we also kind of think, you know, there are uh, times you need to, you know, maybe deviate a little bit from a dollar cost averaging strategy. And that's when the facts change so rapidly um, and the opportunity set changes so rapidly, you really shouldn't wait. Uh, and the two, obviously, I think are uh, the fall of 2008 um, with the great financial crisis and obviously, um, you know, Lehman Brothers and everything that, that triggered uh, post Lehman and what we saw in terms of interest rate moves and equity moves and, you know, spreads on bonds in the, in the agency mortgage market, in the corporate market. And then the second time, you know, was March of 2020, you know, when the world uh, woke up to a, to a global pandemic uh, and the ensuing volatility it imparted on the bond market. Those are the two times, if you look at our allocation, you, we, you just see massive changes, um, literally just overnight in how we're positioned. And we think the, the moves warranted that. So other than those time periods, though, we tend to do it in a more disciplined fashion. I guess maybe digging in a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, one of the things that speaks near and dear to me, just given that, you know, my I cut my teeth doing single name analysis and being an analyst sort of supporting the PM and the trader and all that stuff in a core plus fund. Uh, always an interesting exercise to be in that room in that investment committee. But uh, I, I guess the question is in terms of when you get to that issue specification, you know, is that decision, you know, I guess, where are you making that decision, right? A lot of the times it's going to be sort of what, what can you actually source out of the marketplace, but are you looking at it on a duration time spread basis and we're trying to fill bucket X or, or how are you sort of breaking down that process? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, um, we, we have a, you know, we kind of say around it, the bond market is far too broad and complex to be an ex to be for one person to be an expert in everything. Like, you know, I will tell you as, you know, as much as I have a securitized background, Brian Whalen no longer knows the most about mortgage-backed securities or asset-backed securities than someone else here. Like we have experts here that, you know, they are paid to be, to know more about anyone else in the market about these particular areas. Um, and so the way we kind of, we put it all together is we have a team of what we call generalists, which I'm one of, that kind of, you can think of us as like the investment board. We're kind of the, the senior people who have the experience, who have seen the cycles and also really understand our philosophy and our process. And then we have teams of, uh, of experts from the product areas, like securitized products or credit, uh, interest rates, emerging markets. And these teams are literally paid to be the experts. And so 
the heads of those teams work with us, the generalists, to basically at a high level determine what we want the portfolios to look like, what, you know, what we want our funds to look at thematically, how we should be positioned. And then, you know, Brian Whalen takes his hands off the steering wheel and says, like, oh, okay, you know, um, you know, our, our asset back trader or one of our asset back traders, you're the expert. You decide exactly which bonds we're supposed to buy and which bonds we're supposed to sell in order to get to the targets that myself, the other generalists and the other senior leaguers set for you. And that's how the you know, that's how the bottoms up meets the top down in our in our team. So so pivoting a little bit here to the high yield corporates market, uh, I'm, I'm curious for you guys, you know, you, you obviously invest across a, a wide variety of high yield products. How do you think about the opportunities set across, uh, you know, more traditional high yield corporates, leverage loans and CLOs? And then on top of that, like, which one do you think is best positioned, uh, you know, based on your, your macro view right now? Yeah, I'd say, first of all, in all environments, you know, there's always an opportunity at the issuer level in, in, in leverage finance. So that's high yield bonds and leverage loans. Like it doesn't matter how bad the recession is or whatever. There's always going to be something, you know, there's always going to be a price for something. Right. And, and often you hit it. So, you know, just because we think, you know, this is going to be a, you know, this is not going to be a soft landing. It's going to be something much harder than that. It doesn't mean there aren't credits out there that are attractively priced and we should own. So we have the exposure. However, you know, given the house view and let's just take the high yield bond market, for instance, like it's there's a spread of high yield bonds right now of about 425 basis points over treasuries. If you kind of step back and you look at that that level and, you know, that's the price you're getting, that's the compensation for taking the risk. You look at it over a long time period, you're like, ah, that's about kind of historical averages, you know, plus or minus. So we look at that and says, you know what, like if we're right on the macro outlook, you know, you should not you should be priced more than historical averages entering a recession entering a period where downgrades are going to pick up, entering a period where there's going to be more defaults, entering a period, particularly in leveraged loans now, where when you default, you know, recoveries are going to be quite low. If we're right on that outlook, I can't tell you that high yield spreads are going to go to 600 or 800 or 1,000. We feel pretty comfortable saying they're going to be much wider than four and a quarter. Uh, and so hence, kind of at the, at the highest level, again, let's go back to the previous question. As generalists and kind of other senior leaders, we set a very low allocation to high yield bonds and loans right now because of that outlook. However, taking the hands off the wheel and letting the experts be the experts, if there are particular issuers or specific bonds out there that actually are cheap, where, where risk is actually priced appropriately, then we're going we're gonna to let our team, to some degree, be able to kind of buy that exposure. And, and at the portfolio level, we'll manage the overall risk. And then, I mean, with both of those, like a, a couple of those asset classes, you know, specifically the fixed versus floating aspect of them, you know, given that you know the view that the fed might have to concede uh like how are you guys approaching that in terms of those different types of coupons that you might be taking on sure i'd say you know you know kind of consistent with wanting to long, long duration right now that the, the uh the buy leverage loans because they have a floating rate coupon and they don't have the rate that ships passed i mean that's if you're doing it now like you're looking completely through the rear view mirror uh, like if you're looking forward you not you want duration and if that's the case you agree with that then you want the high yield bonds um, over the leverage loan. So I think, you know, on a go forward basis, that's where your best um, total rate of return will be because 
you'll get the you'll get the coupon, you'll get the yield, and you'll get the duration. And you really just don't get that in the leverage loan market. Yeah, and, and a lot of I feel like recently a lot of talk has been around you know specifically private credit. How do, how does TCW think about that asset class, both you know alone uh, as its its own asset class, and you know how that might ultimately impact some of these other asset classes that we we've talked about as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we we do it all. We've got we've got uh, you know we've got fixed income, traditional, public kind of uh, leverage finance and bonds and loans. We've got a great uh, you know private credit team that used to be called direct lending, but you know now now private credit's the buzzword, and so that's that's where we so we we cover it all. I would say you know drilling down back back into like kind of more of the public world, like high yield and leverage loans. Even if you you have to understand the full landscape. Because there's been not only has private credit grown and expanded its footprint, it's bled into the public markets. Like there, there's a big, big, giant gray area between public and private. And you know, let me tell you something. It's it's a competitive world. It's a competitive business. If if you're in the if you're in the public world and you're not paying attention to the private one, they're going to eat your lunch. And, and what that means is that they're going to start creeping into and taking opportunities from you. And if they're taking opportunities from you, that means you're not keeping the opportunity set as wide as you can for your clients in, in which to invest. Uh, and so now, first of all, I'd say you, you have to always consider, you know, compliance issues and wall issues and information like that's where it gets murky. So that's rule number one. But once you address that the proper way, even coming from a public space, you continue to have to think about and even look for opportunities you can participate in in the in the private world because there's some interesting things there. And you you brought it up briefly there. I'm curious about the that competitive landscape side of things. Do you see it? Maybe not right now, but you know, in the next couple of years, do you see it getting in terms of like uh, it being a crowded trade, uh, or, or how are you seeing that? Yeah, when, when, you know, what's the old saying? When when something looks or feels too good to be true, it, it is without a doubt. Like it, in some ways, you know, another thing is like when it's too easy, there's something going on. You know, it, you know. So so yeah, like it's inevitable. The economy's going to slow down, and somewhere within this giant private credit, you know, there's going to be some problems. Just like banking, right? <laughs> we just saw some problems, right? And there's probably more to come from a credit perspective. So. Without a doubt, there's been a lot of people flooded to this space without the experience. You know, they've kind of got this, this QE mentality. Things are never going to get that bad because central banks are going to save us. And I don't think so. So, you know, there will be, there'll be lesson learned there. You know, the space will be smaller, you know, at some point in the future. But, you know, it doesn't mean private credit's bad or it's that you should avoid it. I just think when you get to this point in the cycle and, and it's expanded the way it has, as an investor, you just better be really thorough and thoughtful about you know who you're doing it with and how you're doing it. I maybe want to pull on a couple of maybe more technical factors of that space before we move on. But uh, I guess you know the two things that sort of uh, appeal to me when I think about uh, that universe is number one, you know, sort of maybe some of the procyclicality because we talked about sort of uh, not wanting to sort of take the duration exposure in the leverage loan space if you're kind of of the mindset that the world's heading for a little bit more uh, lumpiness going forward. And that obviously is something that passes through to the direct lending space, which is predominantly a floating rate instrument. So I guess part of it is, is you know, one does, you know, is it one of those things where it ends up being a little bit more pro-cyclical, both as sort of a capital choice for borrowers 
but then secondarily, even from an investor standpoint, because right now they've only known one part of the rate cycle really through the growth. Uh, and I guess the second question there is really sort of how maybe that risk leads back or, or maybe it reprices or if it reprices at all, uh, sort of risk back through the leverage loan in, in the high yield market, just because now you've got this sort of new competitor in the, in the landscape. Seems like a lot of the incremental flow, you know, companies that might have come through one of those other two markets prior are now going the direct lending route, either because they don't really have a viable option given regulation or whatever, but, uh, or they're just, you know, not wanting to pay up and have that sort of broad investor base. So do you think that changes sort of the the price of liquidity or the price of risk in, in those other two markets at all? Yeah, you just you hit it on the head there. Yeah, so, so um, right. So you had this bank syndicated loan market, right? Where, where these, these levered high yield, you know, five times levered companies would come to um and what's grown out of that it, with you know as as private credit has grown is their ability not just to do traditional bank syndicated but to do these kind of direct situations um and so it's kind of the it's taking you know someone who might have gone through the, the bank syndicated loan market now they're doing it directly with a bank and maybe one of their partners so to speak now that's advantageous for the borrower because they get they get guaranteed financing um it locks it in as opposed to taking the risk of what happens in the, in the capital market so that that's expanded what i would tell you there's two things that pop to mind as you're asking that question as an investor what i like about private credit i love the flexibility i love the ability of if let's say i'm investing in a fund i love the ability of my smart lender you know my manager of this who has experience, who has a deep team. I love the ability of them to work with a company who's maybe going through a rocky patch, right? I love that. That gives, you know, that, you, you know, if thing is super rigid, right? If something's super rigid and it just hits volatility, it's more likely to snap and crack. If, if you know, if, if something else has pliability, it can bend and flex and a lender can work with a company in a different difficult situation, it could get it through, you know, a difficult time period. And that's, I think that's one of the beauties of private credit. And it's something you're going to see right in a marketing deck. On the other hand, and where I think we'll probably see some problems, um, you know, the weeding out, so to speak, you know, in a different capital market economic environment, um, it's it's what you hit on. It's 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 liquidity. And, and I like to talk about it just like the banks, uh, for, you know, the, you know, SVB and Signature Bank. It's an asset liability mismatch. So make no mistake about it, you know. Um, direct loans most of the private credit world it's an illiquid instrument um and, and it's you you can't really trade it it takes a long period of time that's not bad as long as it's within a vehicle that doesn't have to raise liquidity um and sell those loans it however if it's in a type of vehicle where you know an investor is just you know private credit's hot they want to get involved they want to make these loans but they're managing money that, you know, if their investors come knocking on it, you know, they're going to have to, you know, give them their money back in a day, a week, or even a month. And we enter a volatile time period. Those are the ones that are going to weed it out. They're going to have a problem because they're going to have to sell these assets at prices much below what they're worth because the market's going to charge them for it. Yeah, I, I can't imagine what the, uh, <laughs> the price step down will be when you're trying to source that bid for a $20 million tranche of you know, company X that nobody has the financials on, but uh, it'll be interesting as it happens. It's going to hurt. That, that price is going <laughs> to hurt. I promise you that. I don't know what it'll be either, but it's going to be painful. Yeah. So 
So I guess uh, that maybe talks, uh, sort of leans into uh, another question I sort of wanted to talk to in terms of, and this is both about investment grade and the high yield, but just sort of about the market technicals a little bit, right? So, you know, one of the things obviously with average coupons, but they are being well below where the index yields are. You know, we got bond prices that are 80, 90 cents on the dollar a lot of times and even lower depending on where you are in terms of maturity. Uh, you know, one of the questions I get a lot or conversations that I have a fair amount on is for this pull to par effect, right? which to me is in part reality, but also a little bit of a figment just because you're just paying for the spread. But there's definitely, when you start thinking about the proximity to some sort of prospective recovery rate, there's some legitimacy to it, maybe to, to trade at a slight premium. But I guess when you're thinking about sort of gaining exposures and stuff like that, do you, you know, there's, there's an old saw in the industry that you don't really want to own bar, bonds too far above par. Is there a, an inverse to that in terms of owning bonds at 70 cents, or do you want to be closer to par and, and at the certain current coupon? Sure, let's let's break out that universe into two buckets. There's bonds that trade at a huge discount, 50, 60, 70, even 80 cents on the dollar. But the upside there, that's just another way or a simpler way of talking about duration. That's just it. Like they're there because as you said, the coupons are slow, so low. They have a 1% coupon. But the market pricing is at six, and so to accommodate for that, you got to you, you as a buyer. I'm, hey, I'm only going to buy the eighty cents in the dollar. That pull the par in most bonds is just going to happen if interest rates rally. So that's just duration. Um, there's nothing fancy about that. However, there is another interesting bucket, you know, in in this pull the par universe, and that's more about credit. Um, that's more about buying, let's say, a, a corporate bond. Priced at 80 cents in the dollar because it's got a low coupon. But if you can do the research and you can find the companies that may be part of a leverage buyout or MA or maybe doing something, you know, within their business and their capital structure, that's going to require them to take those bonds out of the marketplace and buy them at par. That's the that's that positive credit convexity that will kind of enhance your returns. So, oh, trust me, we are scouring the universe. We, we have a few pulled apart situations like that, that you know, we're optimistic on, and we've seen some to date. However, I would caution and just say, that's not the most scalable strategy. Like those are kind of, those are the needles in the haystack. So look, you always wanna do the research. You always wanna have them in your portfolio. Um, but you know, you know the, the market's smart. Uh, a lot of those, you know, have been picked apart, and and the and the companies that have the highest likelihood of having that type of event, more likely than not, their their bonds are trading close to par just for that reason. Um, so you got to just got to do the homework and and understand that you know you may, the the list isn't very long. Yeah, I guess one of the things that strikes me there too, because if you're thinking predominantly through sort of a core plus lens, right? It's it, it's also probably you got to think about sort of the ROI of the investment exercise because you're probably not building such a large position that you're talking about tens of basis points of incremental performance, right? So uh, I guess, you know, one of the things that I guess, you know, Sam and I were able to have a conversation not too long ago about sort of this pull to par being a factor in some of the CLO space as well, as they talk about sort of building the par build within the, the context of the structure. So that kind of struck me as sort of an interesting aside of, you know, maybe if you're looking for things that could kind of keep spreads a little bit more compressed than they might otherwise be given the macro backdrop or the deteriorating fundamental picture, you know, it's interesting to think through some of those technicals. But uh, maybe turning a little bit supply demand here, 
and, and with the creep up in coupons, I think nowadays in, in the Bloomberg US corporate bond index, we're probably generating like 270, 280 billion in terms of annual interest income. And that's a number that's going to continue to move higher given that the average coupon is still inside of 4% versus a yield of six and a quarter or wherever it is today. So I guess, you know, thinking through what's sort of driving the markets and, and, and those sorts of things, do you think a lot about, you know, what supply is going to look like relative to just that sort of core demand of refinancing activity plus interest income, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I think, um, you know, those supply stories sound nice and sometimes those narratives fit the price action but those are you know that's that's short you know those are very short-term things i don't even tell you you know in some ways you say oh there's a lot of supply so you know things should cheapen up or spread should widen and that's like your initial gut reaction i'll tell you you know the other side of the same person's mouth they're going to tell you supply brings demand <laughs> and i've seen that as often as i've seen the former it's like oh now there's a whole lot of like CMBS issuance and that's kind of woken the market up from its from its you know its its nap and it's like oh boy look at this sector all this issuance and that looks interesting and now you bring all these investors it gets everyone's attention and they sop it all up so you know in the short term i've seen a lot of supply or, or less supply than expected move markets one way or the other i don't think there's a real consistent pattern to it i think to just you know deliver good risk-adjusted returns in the bond market, you're looking at fundamentals, you know, you're looking at fundamentals of the economy, you're looking at fundamentals uh, of specific issuers, like that's, and you're looking at the pricing of that risk, and you know, that's how you, that's how you deliver um, good performance uh, over the long run. Yeah, and for what it's worth, you know, Sam and I over the past have done correlations between those types of things as well as flows, and, and you know, you can you can pick isolated periods of time where maybe there's a strong positive correlation, but by and large, you know, over longer windows of time, you get an R squared close to zero. So, uh, I guess maybe the flip side of that coin is, you know, given the deficits that we're running at the economic level, mm -hmm. <laughs> at the government mm -hmm. level, uh, and the amount of supply that they're being forced to sort of push through, do you, you know, I guess the other side of that coin is, you know, there's the old. Uh, economic theory around crowding out and stuff like that. Do you do you worry about the amount of supply that we're going to have to absorb from the sovereign side and and sort of the risk free rate, sort of chasing people out of otherwise uh, you know spread assets? Well, you know, I think you know the, the latter. You know, the Fed raising rates to you know to five plus percent is it's it's intentional. You know, you want to make you you want to make that boring old savings account that didn't pay a thing. Uh, you know, for the last, you know, X number of years, you want people to kind of move their money into it and, and away from, from risk. And that's how the Fed slows things down. I mean, that's, 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 you know, interest rate management um, 101. When it get back to, you know, the issuance uh, due to deficits, you know, coming from sovereigns, you know, the U.S., let's just say, you know, as an example, I, honestly, it's, again, it's kind of narrative to kind of fit the the recent price action don't i don't i don't worry about it to be quite honest with you because if it gets too out of hand the bond market will take care of that just for the federal government it'll force its hand right it'll push rates so up that you know they'll have to exercise better discipline and again you talked about running numbers and correlations again i can tell you if you look over a long time period you can find periods where issuance of u.s treasuries went way up and yields rose too and that kind of fits that narrative and then you could find as many times issuance went up and rates dropped dramatically. Uh, and because the background of the US economy was slowing and there was a risk off kind of environment, 
and people just wanted needed to own them. There wasn't enough of them, so prices went up and yields went down. So again, over the long term, you know, we haven't seen a, a strong correlation to worry about which way yields are going to go because you know U.S. Treasury supply might be going up a little bit. So getting back to something that you had brought up earlier in the conversation around uh, agency mortgage-backed securities and, and the weakness that we've seen there, specifically around the, that negative convexity, are you able to just you know walk our listeners through what you're seeing that's driving that trend? Sure. Um, well, let's we'll do a negative convexity 101. Um, keep it simple. So I talked to, I talked a little bit earlier. I think about it like process and and pain and value and having to kind of go with it. Well, why has there been pain in the well? You know, a couple of years ago, um, the duration on an agency mortgage-backed security was three years, and then while the Fed was raising rates and we just saw this, you know, this big jump, this hundreds of basis point rise in interest rates. When you and, and in that in that environment, you want to minimize your interest rate duration. Well, by guess what, the duration throughout that time period went from three to six over that time period. So negative duration means that, um, or negative convexity, excuse me, it means that you're getting more and more in duration at the time you, you you don't want that to happen. It works against you. It's an optionality you've sold to the underlying borrower and that's, 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 that's 201. Uh, so back to this, so a lot of pain. And then also that's the fundamental pain. The technical pain is we've been in an environment where three things, the Fed went from buying agency mortgage-backed securities to selling as they shrink their balance sheet. Um, banks have been kind of out of the marketplace. You know, they've kind of pulled back. Um, and then three, foreign investors have been out. Um, you know, the, the cost for foreign investors to hedge from a currency perspective, their U.S. You know, asset purchases, which includes bonds like agency mortgage-backed securities, has been exceptionally high um, the past few years. So. At the same time, you've had one of the most damaging fundamental environments for agency mortgage-backed securities. You've had one of the worst technical environments as well in terms of this buyer strike. And so it's this kind of nasty, perfect storm. Um, and the result of that is spreads uh, on agency mortgage-backed securities relative to treasuries looking like we're in the middle of a financial crisis. You know, I, I was talking to a client this week and I said, you know, if I was if I or, was orbiting the Earth for two years, I had no contact, and I landed, and the first thing I looked at was agency mortgage-backed security spreads, which which actually might be the case, for, you know, for a bond geek, it, it, I would have been like, "What are we in the middle of a Great Depression or something? Or did some giant, you know, did J.P. Morgan, you know, go underneath some big bank default? No, no, it's just been this combination of the two, and so that that sector stands out as as cheap and as an opportunity and Again, we don't know when it'll turn, but we feel like over the long term, you're gonna you're gonna wish you bought agency mortgage, you know, securities at these levels right now. Um, and it's really it's interesting juxtaposition versus like the corporate bond market, where as I've said, like it looks for it looks priced for anything other than <laughs> a mild to, or a, you know mild to a hard, kind of hard landing. It looks like it's just priced priced for perfection for this kind of like Goldilocks environment to last forever, and so. At the portfolio level, like you know what, corporate bonds right now, you know, Mister Market, you can have that. We're not, we're going to underweight that. Agency mortgage-backed securities, even though there's pain, we're going to go in there. It might take a few bumps and bruises in the middle. That looks attractive, and we're going to, we're going to, and our clients are going to benefit from owning it right now. So that's that's been the mindset. So then, stepping back, and let's let's say we exclude agency MBSs here. 
for you, RelVal, across the, the entire landscape, what do you see as like another potential opportunity area uh, there? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we like duration. Obviously, we like agency mortgage-backed securities. We like non-agency mortgage-backed securities. That's the that's the like category. Um, we are um, underweight. We don't like corporate bonds, IG, high yield, um, you know, leverage loans. It's not to say that any of these are going to be a massive problem. We just don't like the pricing. We think there'll be more uh, attractive entry points um, for those areas. You know, areas we're kind of keeping an eye on that, we you know, you know, commercial mortgage-backed securities and some asset-backed securities look look interesting right now. And it's, you know, it's kind of like dabbling around the edges for stuff that looks cheap, that's super high quality. But we're really keeping most of our powder dry in those areas because we do think, you know, the, the worst is yet to come, uh, particularly in commercial real estate. Things are going to get worse before they get better. Uh, bond prices are going to go down before they go up. Uh, and so it's something we've kind of, we're zoning in on. We're, you know, we got our list of, of bonds we're looking to buy. We're just looking for better, again, better entry points. So I guess uh, keeping with the maybe Sandra Bullock and gravity sort of narrative that you've established for yourself here, uh, <laughs> I, I think we just need to get you a Starlink phone or something like that. But I, I do want to stay mindful of time here. But one of the things that I'm super curious, uh, just given you know TCW as a shop and sort of how well established it is in its space, uh, but maybe not necessarily associated with sort of the, the the bleeding edge of sort of systematic and stuff like that. You had mentioned the word aversion when I brought it up as sort of a, the word association piece. Do you have a thought, I guess, and technologically more broadly, whether you're talking about electronic trade, which seems to be taking a larger and larger share uh, in terms of how people are executing? Firstly, does electronic trade sort of meet the needs of, of somebody like TCW? Does it offer enough liquidity, volume, ability to build positions, number one? And then I guess number two, do you think at all in terms of systematic as, as a complementary resource in terms of how it may interplay with the, the, the more fundamental top-down, bottom-up sort of intertwining of, of portfolio management? Yeah, you know, again, like with systematic and 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 and, you know, I'm not going to say electronics, so like quant oriented trading, like we're never going to say that that's, you know, those aren't interesting areas or they don't, maybe there's not a place for your portfolio in with, you know, kind of that type of exposure. But, you know, that's just round peg square hole for us. That's just not who we are. We, 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 we don't see how you can kind of in a, in a, in a, in a, in a healthy, genuine way, mix those two. Um, however, um, what has gone on though, and, and that's why I want to separate quant and, you know, electronic, you know, the advent of electron trading electronically, um, a term called portfolio trading, um, which is kind of a, a, a birth of the, the growth of the ETF market. That is something actually a kind of a true traditional fundamental investor like ourselves has actually taken advantage of. So, you know, back in the way back in the day, you know, 2015 <laughs> and before, <laughs> you know, we, we, we used to sell corporate bonds and buy corporate bonds one at a time. You know, it was like, you know, it was, it was brutal. It was tiresome, you know, but that's, that's what you get paid to do. Now, um, the dealers have these teams set up and, and a lot of the other side is often, you know, ETFs where we, TCW, we can put a literally like a huge basket you know, a multi-line item. So, you know, 25, 50 bonds together, all varying sizes. And we just put it out and kind of sell the whole thing at once. And what that's resulted in is much better liquidity and execution um, for our clients than, than we've ever had. So 
that's like I said, that's the old school fundamental based kind of disciplined value investor like we are using kind of new school tools to to not change the way we invest, but change the way we execute, which results in a better experience, and better returns uh, for the client. Interesting. So, I mean, and that's I actually am kind of surprised because I, I always think about it as a, as a space where it's really kind of hard to source, you know, because I would assume that you're trying to pull together pretty large lots but but i mean i guess the portfolio trading has, has certainly come a long way uh you know so listen i think we started with a little word association so i'm actually going to finish there as well and, and let's see how we do but um it's a phrase that i've been hearing a lot of lately i'm i'm not exactly sure given this conversation where you're going to come out on it <laughs> but the phrase is generational opportunity Reminds me of Taliban. It seems to happen a lot more often than, 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 the, than, the, than the definition of the term. All right. All right. So actually, so, since that was such an abbreviated answer, we'll give you one more. Yeah. Texas or Arizona in the World Series? <laughs> I'm gonna, uh, I got to go with Arizona. I'll just stick close to home here. You got you to gotta love, uh, love our neighbor there, Arizona. All right. Excellent. So, <laughs> Brian, really appreciate the conversation and your thoughts uh, on where we are in this cycle and, and sort of getting into all the, the weeds with us in terms of portfolio manager side. Certainly uh, been a pleasure for myself and I'm sure Sam as well. Uh, so on the behalf of both of us, uh, thanks once again. And uh, to our listeners, until next time, this has been Credit Crunch. <laughs>